Hello there, folks. Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Moore, and I'd like to thank you very much for joining me once again to take a deep dive into this interesting thing that we call the conservative media bubble. Well, we did it, folks. Against the most overwhelming of odds, and with pundits on the left, right, and center, all declaring that this was going to be a massive Republican red wave, and after that happened, then democracy would slowly die in America. Somehow, we avoided it. Democratic voters actually got their butts out to the polls, voted in droves, specifically Gen Z deserves a shout-out for actually coming out and voting to save democracy. But we did it. Democracy is not dead yet in the United States. And the Republicans got a nice little rebuff, specifically from the younger generation, saying, we're not quite ready to go down the path of authoritarianism yet. So if you couldn't tell, I'm extremely happy about that. And yeah, sure, the Republicans took the House, but A, at what cost? And B, I'll get into this later, it might not go the way they think it will, specifically because there seems to be the splintering of the Republican Party and the bubble in general into two separate factions. And again, I'll go into that later as I talk about the bubble's coverage of the election. But the Democrats held the Senate and will likely gain another seat because I think there's no way that Herschel Walker wins the runoff. But more importantly, in the local and statewide elections, in terms of governorships and secretaries of state and election officials and things like that, Every single major election denier from the Republican Party who ran for office lost to a Democrat. And if you ask me, this is the biggest both surprise and the best thing to come out of these midterms, because the whole idea of what the Republicans are trying to accomplish, and I go into this in my earlier episodes, was that they wanted to be able to control the elections in the swing states specifically when Moore versus Harper gets ruled on and the independent state legislature theory becomes law. And speaking of which, I'd like to go into just a brief explainer before I get started on my episode today about while this is very good news for American democracy that the Democrats didn't completely lose everything, we still need to be very wary about both what the Republicans are trying to do and why they're trying to do it. So just really quickly here, I'm going to explain what's going on with this Supreme Court case that's going to be heard in December and why it's so important for democracy. So Moore versus Harper is basically a Supreme Court case that tests the independent state legislature theory, which basically states that the Constitution says that state legislatures are responsible for handling elections. And because of this, this means that Only state legislatures are responsible for handling elections, and what they do, the way they run elections, and even the candidates they pick based on the votes, or in this case, not based on the votes, cannot be overruled by anybody, whether that be the governor or the secretary of state or even the state Supreme Court or even the federal Supreme Court. The independent state legislature theory essentially states that State legislatures who run the elections can decide both the manner in which the elections are run and the results of those elections, whether they're legitimate or not, and change them. And because the Constitution specifically says that they're in charge of local elections, that there's nothing else 
anyone can do about what they decide. So if, for example, in Wisconsin, they had a Republican state legislature and secretary of state, and the state voted overwhelmingly for Biden in the 2024 election, the state legislature could say, well, we've just seen so much voter fraud happening all over our state that we can't trust the results of this election. We're not going to give our electors the results for Biden. We're going to give them the election for Trump or DeSantis or whoever the Republicans run. And what Moore versus Harper essentially says is that if they decide to do this, if they decide to unilaterally switch the state's electoral votes from Biden to Trump, there's nothing anyone can do about it, including the state or federal Supreme Court. And what this means in terms of democracy is that votes no longer matter. It doesn't matter if Biden won the state because they're just going to flip it for Trump and there's nothing anyone can do about it because the state legislature is independent and they have final say on both how the election is run and how it's counted. So believe it or not, this was the argument that Trump's lawyers tried to make in 2020 when they were trying to overturn the election. But the Supreme Court at the time, anyway, refused to hear it. But now they're hearing this case, and it's widely believed by a lot of people, including myself, that they're going to rule in favor of the independent state legislature theory. So what this means is that swing states that have Republican-controlled state legislatures and secretaries of state will essentially be able to decide unilaterally who wins the 2024 presidential election in their state. And as you can imagine, this is the setup for a very scary situation. And the scariest thing about this is this is not a new phenomenon that has just come up in the last couple of years. This is something that has been planned for decades by a group called the Federalist Society. And the Federalist Society is essentially a conservative group of judges and lawyers and activists whose main goal is and has always been to put conservatives in places of power, specifically in judicial and legislative places, and once they're there, cementing and solidifying that power to make sure that they never leave it. Think of it as a discount right-wing Illuminati. Their whole goal is to place themselves in positions of power from which they can basically control things from the shadows. Except not really from the shadows so much as just having the right people in the right place at the right time. And the problem with this is that they're closer than they ever have been to their goal. Six out of the nine justices on the Supreme Court, all the conservative justices, are members of the Federalist Society. And it's no accident that Roe v. Wade got overturned almost immediately after they had six people on the Supreme Court. And as I said, they've been trying to accomplish this for decades. And I read a quote on Twitter that really sort of put it into perspective. They spent decades drawing back the bow, but once the arrow flies, it flies fast. And that's essentially what we're seeing happening right now. In 2022, conservatives, the Federalist Society, and Republicans, as a result, have finally realized that they have the power in the judicial branch to be able to move forward with their agenda without anyone being able to stop it. It started with Roe v. Wade, and as I'll get into, 
it's pretty clear that that initial salvo definitely woke a lot of people up on the left and in the center to what was happening. But they're not done yet. Roe v. Wade was just the beginning. Clarence Thomas even made that clear in his concurring opinion, basically saying we should take a look at gay marriage and interracial marriage and contraception and right to privacy and things like that, that the Federalist Society and conservatives in general want repealed because they want to be able to control you. That's sort of the whole idea of the conservative ideology, that the right people should be controlling the people who aren't in power because they specifically deserve to do it, because they're just more powerful and better than you. So the reason why I'm mentioning Moore versus Harper specifically and the ramifications it would have for American democracy is that that ruling is part of a plan by the GOP and conservatives and the Federalist Society to basically solidify their grip on American power and make it extremely hard, if not impossible, for them to legally be removed. And the idea behind why these midterms were so important for them and why they were just predicting a red wave was because they thought they would get Republicans in the House and the Senate so that nothing could get done in Biden's administration and sort of set the table for a return to power in 2024 by the Republicans. But more importantly, so that Governors, secretaries of state, and state legislatures, specifically in the swing states that they lost in 2020, would be governed by Republicans outright. And so what Moore versus Harper would mean for this is that these swing states would not be swing states anymore. They'd be solidly Republican, regardless of how the people in them voted. Because, according to the independent state legislature theory, they are above the law when it comes to counting votes and deciding who won. So if Biden wins by a comfortable margin in Arizona and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, but the Republicans run the state legislature and secretary of state, those people can basically say, no, we don't believe that Biden won this state. We believe that Trump won the state, even though the voting results say otherwise. So we're just going to go ahead and send Trump electors to the Electoral College. And nothing anybody says or does can change the fact that they can do that under Moore versus Harper. So as I said, this was all part of a plan by Republicans in the Federalist Society to make sure that they could get into positions of power without having to actually win elections. And the state legislatures and secretaries of state are extremely important in this role. And this is why the midterms were so important this year and both Obama and Biden were not exaggerating when they said that democracy was literally on the ballot. Because if the Republicans had gotten control of these Secretary of State positions and state legislatures, those votes would not mean anything anymore. Democracy as we know it would be dead. But that didn't happen. Instead, on Election Day, Democrats, and mainly young Democrats, came out, made their voices heard, and said, we will not go quietly into the night. But if you'd been watching any sort of political media in the days leading up to the election, you wouldn't have thought this was going to happen at all. In fact, I can honestly say I was one of the few people I knew who said that things might go better than most people thought they would. I personally believed that the Democrats would lose the House but keep the Senate. And it actually went even better than I thought it would because I thought the Democrats would lose a sizable portion of the House, and instead, 
they barely lost it. But on conservative media, the day before the election, it was all smiles and rainbows and sunshine and laughter. They were predicting a red wave the likes of which had never been seen before on this earth. Don't believe me? Here's a nice little montage that Chris Hayes of MSNBC put together of Fox News pundits explaining just how big this red wave was going to be. Be an analyst for a second. Does it feel like a red wave? It feels like a red wave, Brian. You know, your predictions of a red wave are accurate. Somebody made a surfboard, said the red wave is coming. Red wave rising. That red wave that I'm convinced is coming. The reports I'm seeing show a big red wave coming. Sleepy Joe just guaranteed a red wave in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of energy on the ground. You probably hear the rally in the background right now. We think we're going to have a big red wave in Michigan. Democrats are bracing for the worst case scenario, a red tsunami. We are officially on a red tsunami watch. Sean, we're going to see a red tsunami red tsunami grows that means red tsunami we're not just going to see a red wave we're going to see a red tsunami poverty joblessness critical race theory crazy gender ideology in our schools we are going to see a red tsunami and lastly your prediction for tonight i think we're going to have a red wave i think it's going to be maybe bigger than anyone thought on tuesday we will be part of a big red wave that says enough is enough you are about to see a red wave that makes day after tomorrow look like nothing. That's going to be responsible for the red wave. I think the red wave that's coming is going to be like the elevator doors opening up in The Shining. <laughs> Rogan said that the red wave is going to look like the elevator doors opening and the blood pouring out of the elevator in The Shining. Like the elevator doors opening up in The Shining. That is correct, except it's not going to be an elevator. It's going to look more like Deep Impact, the tsunami at the end, but colored red. Remember that Taya Leone Deep Impact disaster movie? That's the red wave tsunami that'll come ashore. It's going to be a brutal week for the Democrats beginning on Tuesday. And frankly, I've already DVR'd CNN and MSNBC for election night, not because I'm going to watch, but just because I want to enjoy the tears. It's a red wave. It's a red tsunami. We're going to enjoy the tears of the libs. Pity that didn't happen. But if you were watching Fox News or any other conservative outlet the day before, you'd never have guessed it. You thought it was going to be the greatest day in the history of conservative politics. And let's be clear, Fox News certainly did not skimp on the importance of this election, just maybe not in the way that you thought they would. Judge Janine, talking on The Five, essentially said that if the Democrats win, they will never let the GOP win another election. It will be the end of democracy as we know it. They hate Americans. They hate freedom. They want to get rid of free speech like big tech did. And most importantly, if the Democrats win, they're going to trans our kids. In other words, projection, projection, and more projection, because as I've said many times on this show before, everything other than the trans part, that's kind of unique to the GOP, is exactly what the conservatives in America have been doing since going down this more authoritarian path. Judge Deneen, in fact, was so much doom and gloom that the other hosts tried to talk her down, but she kept going. And Jesse Waters, of all people, forced a subject change in the most awkward way possible. As Judge Janine was, I guess, finishing up her rant, or at least there was a pause in it, he then said, just completely out of the blue, you know what, Democrat, I like? You. And he points to the lone Democrat on the Fives panel. But this got so ridiculous that even Greg Gutfeld, who is known for 
unabashedly making fun of liberals in like the worst possible way, tried to get her to stop. But she kept going until there was a pause and Waters tried to just take them into a commercial break with a nice little anecdote. But once they got back from that commercial break, they continued their assault on the credibility of liberals and Democrats. They projected the insult narrative on the Democrats, basically saying that they were the ones insulting voters and making Republicans look bad. Not mentioning, of course, that their messiah Donald Trump is well known for hurtling insults at his enemies. Then Gutfeld, going right back to his usual M.O., called Biden a wimp, Judge Janine agreed, and said that he's also been lying, quote, according to the fact finders. Not sure which fact finders she's referring to, but that would probably be the first time they've ever been consulted on anything I've ever seen on Fox News. But Jesse Waters sort of concluded the whole discussion with an analogy to a horse race, saying it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish. And if you ask me, the Democrats at the time were closing much stronger than the GOP, with things like what we saw from Obama and Biden over the weekend. And just a little side note, I thought Obama's speech in Philadelphia over the weekend before the election was one of the most incredible political speeches I've ever heard in my life, specifically the way he ended it. And I would very much encourage you to go find it. It's up on Twitter and YouTube and pretty much everywhere. And just listen to his plea for why this election is so important and why democracy is so important. But I digress. Going back to Jesse Waters, he closed the show with a nice little note of, we'll see a historic beatdown of the Democrats by the Republicans. It's going to be the biggest red wave in history. He says that the Democrats blew it. They lied about everything, saying, suck it up and eat Chef Boyardee with regard to the rising inflation. He then showed a bunch of real clear politics polls saying that the GOP would win every close Senate race and a few that weren't even close. So seeing that they were actually trying to use polling data on an otherwise opinion-related show, I decided to look up these polls and the company that made them real clear politics. And it turns out that according to many nonpartisan watchdog sites that I went to, real clear politics used to be fairly accurate and consistent back in the mid-aughts to late teens, but nowadays they're quite low on the reliability scale and tend to skew right. So they're not necessarily a bubble-specific polling place, but they definitely sort of enhance the narrative that the bubble is trying to create that there was going to be this red wave. And to be fair, most other places, including MSNBC and other liberal outlets, were at this point speculating that there would be some sort of red wave. So I don't blame them for using this polling data, and I don't blame a lot of other people for believing them. But as I said earlier, at the time, I didn't think it was going to be as bad as people thought it was. But even on the mainstream media and in liberal circles, there was lots of speculation the day before the election that Trump was going to announce his candidacy and that it would galvanize Democratic voters into a late surge. But there was nothing of the sort on Fox, Breitbart, The Daily Caller, or The Federalist. However, Newsmax and One America both prominently featured stories on their front page saying that Trump was expected to make his candidacy announcement the day before the election. And if you ask me, this was sort of the first sign 
that we saw of the bubble splitting into two separate sort of realities. And this phenomenon definitely started to manifest itself a lot more once the smoke cleared and the GOP and conservatives and the bubble realized that they didn't get the wins that they thought they would. But it made me realize that the bubble essentially has two separate but necessarily equal parts. You have what I would call the real bubble, which is Newsmax, One America, uh, Steve Bannon's network, Real America's Voice, Infowars, those kinds of places that basically formulate the narrative itself. They are unabashedly biased, don't apologize for it, and dabble in conspiracy theories. And then you have what I would call the legitimate outer bubble, places like Fox and Breitbart and the New York Post, that on the outside project fairness and saying that they're essentially a news organization that you know, deals in reality, but actually puts out watered-down versions of the more extreme and conspiratorial parts of the bubble's narrative. And this legitimate outer portion tends to not get directly involved, at least not anymore, with people like Trump or Alex Jones or the white nationalist people like Nick Fuentes. But that doesn't mean that in these outlets, there aren't still people trying to cater to that inner bubble. And chief among them is Tucker Carlson. There's a reason I talk about Tucker so much on this show. It's because he's so vitally important to controlling and shaping the narrative of the bubble. Tucker acts as a sort of bridge between the legitimate-ish portions of the outer bubble and the conspiratorial portions of the inner bubble. And the way he most often does this, as I explained last episode, is with the Tucker Carlson formula for political gaslighting. And his coverage of the election the night before was no different. Tucker's monologue at the beginning of his show was basically accusing the Democrats of what the Democrats and anyone with a brain were accusing the GOP and conservatives of, election fraud. Essentially saying that the Democrats don't want to lose so badly that they're willing to threaten civil war to make sure that they win. Here's a snippet of that for you. Message, bottom line, Democrats absolutely cannot lose tomorrow's elections. That's their view. This cannot happen. So with that in mind, they're already preparing the rest of us for election theft, which if you don't want a civil war, you shouldn't complain about. You should just passively accept. So nothing to see here, folks. Just Tucker Carlson telling his viewers to mentally prepare for a civil war because the Democrats might not accept the results of the election if they lose. Again, projection, very common thing that we see in the bubble, and specifically something that we see since Trump sort of took over the rhetoric. Just accuse the other side of whatever you yourself are doing. It's the no-you approach to politics. Oh, you're saying we're inciting civil war and trying to fix elections so that we can't lose anymore? That's exactly what someone who's doing that would want us to think. It's you who's rigging the elections. It's you who wants to start the civil war if you lose. But beyond this projection, Tucker also predicted a huge red wave, and he actually had Ron DeSantis on for about 30 seconds, who agreed. Tucker basically just threw him puff questions about his policies and all the great things he's done to make Florida great again. DeSantis talked about fighting Disney to keep schools from sexualizing our kids and touted his immigrant flight to Martha's Vineyard. But in the middle of this, Trump then landed at his rally where everyone, including myself, expected that he was going to announce his candidacy for president. Tucker quickly got DeSantis off the air, 
speculated whether Trump would run for president tonight, and said they'd go live to him when he did. Notice I said when he did, not if he did, because it was fully expected by both the bubble and myself that he would indeed announce that he was running. And then for the rest of the show and for a good time afterwards, they had Trump's rally playing in a corner without audio, basically as a reminder of, you know, he might announce, so we're just going to keep it on him just in case he does. And throughout the rest of Tucker's show, he had a revolving carousel of House, Senate, and gubernatorial candidates on his show as guests. The Chirons all said something to the effect of, this person will be the next representative or the next senator or the next governor of this state. In my take on this, all this positivity that they were exuding the day before the election was that they were pumping the adherence of the bubble so full of hot air and positivity that if things didn't go the way they thought they would, there would be anger and rage and confusion and just basically feelings that would only reinforce the connection that these people would feel to the bubble. And as we know now, this is exactly what ended up happening. They were hyping up to an insane degree the confidence in a GOP victory on all fronts. And if it had ended up happening, then great. We predicted it properly. See how good we are at predicting things. But if it didn't, then they had a basis from which to be able to cry foul on the election and the election process. And it's very interesting to me that they chose to go this route because it didn't really end up happening that way as we know now. My expectation at the time was that we'd see something to the effect of all indications were that we would see a red wave and the fact that it didn't happen must mean the Democrats cheated. And as I'll go into later on, we did see a little bit of that, but for the most part, even the more conspiratorial parts of the bubble basically just sat back and accepted the fact that they'd lost. But the day before, you wouldn't have guessed that that was going to happen at all. Hannity came on after Tucker, and unlike Tucker, he actually split his screen with Trump's speech, even though he wasn't actually playing the audio. Tucker just had him in a corner. Hannity, who is known to be a personal friend and longtime advisor to Trump, actually gave him equal screen space to himself. So just an interesting little dichotomy that shows there was definitely an internal conflict at Fox News over how much Trump to show and in what light they wanted to portray him. And as I'll get into later, this dichotomy really sort of ended up manifesting itself a lot more during the election coverage and in the days after. And as if to prove my point, about 15 minutes into Hannity's program, he switched exclusively to Trump's speech for a few minutes, and he was doing what he does at his rallies and just riffing on some random topic that he'd brought up during his speech. But after a few minutes of this, they switched back to Hannity, and then he had Lindsey Graham on sitting next to Herschel Walker. For the entirety of the interview, Lindsey Graham had a look on his face that I can only describe as, Hello, darkness, my old friend. Lindsey Graham was clearly not happy to be there and clearly did not want to be part of Herschel Walker's campaign. But I'm assuming that the bigwigs in the Republican Party told him, you have to go over there and support him because we need a Senate majority. So Herschel Walker was there talking to Hannity. Lindsey Graham was also there sort of babysitting him and repeating all the Republican talking points that we know and love. 
If we do not win this cycle, God help us all, we will slide into socialism. Interestingly, he then sort of went into a list of things that Democrats support that he knows Herschel Walker won't vote for. And this entire time, Herschel was just sitting right next to him, looking into the camera, grinning like an idiot. So it's almost as if Herschel can't say these things himself because he's so gaff prone. So they had Lindsey Graham do it instead. And if we've seen anything in this past week or so, it's that Herschel Walker should never be allowed onto a stage unsupervised. But right after Herschel Walker, predictably, Hannity had Dr. Oz on. Dr. Oz said he had just spoken to a crowd of a thousand plus people, but if you look in the crowd behind him, he had maybe 10. So just yet another example of Trumpian hyperbole worming its way into the narrative of the bubble. And as the show went on, Hannity, like Tucker, had different candidates from the GOP on to basically explain how big the red wave was going to be. But every once in a while, he would keep cutting back to Trump whenever he thought, hey, this is it. This is going to be when he announces his candidacy. And he'd just be ranting about random things, as he always does. And of course, as we know, he ended up not announcing it, although he definitely did everything he could to hint at announcing it, including saying that he was going to make an announcement on November 15th. So in that respect, he basically announced his candidacy without announcing his candidacy. And the whole thing came off as just yet another chance for Trump to shine the spotlight on himself at the expense of everyone else in the GOP. And this, of course, is exactly what he wants. He wants all the Republicans in power and in the bubble to realize that he is still the one in control, both of the narrative and of the candidates that they run. But he didn't announce that night, which is an interesting point to me, because my guess is that he was told by every Republican under the sun that if he announced his candidacy the night before the election, he would galvanize Democrats into a stronger response. And honestly, I think that's probably a pretty accurate representation of what would have happened. And to be fair, it did happen anyway, but nobody was expecting it at this point. But regardless of the intent, it seemed as though Fox was already done with this charade because they didn't show him when he announced that he would have an announcement. Instead, they just had a 30-second clip of a correspondent basically saying, this is what happened, and then they went back to Hannity. And this was, in a lot of ways, a sort of harbinger of things to come, both from Fox and from the bubble in general. That once things didn't go according to plan, they were going to have to blame somebody, and they were sort of already setting up Trump to take this blame. So moving on to the day of the election itself, I decided to take a little bit different of an approach than I normally do. So rather than watching Fox or OAN or Newsmax or one of those channels that's on the legitimate outer portion of the bubble, I decided to just impermeate myself even deeper into the conspiratorial part, and I got my election coverage from Real America's News, which, if you don't know, is Steve Bannon's right-wing propaganda channel that happened to be available on my Roku. So when I first turned it on, the first thing I saw was Steve Bannon in his chair looking me directly in the eye and saying, although the clouds are breaking in Florida, a storm is coming. And aside from being a not-so-thinly-veiled QAnon reference, this was definitely Steve Bannon saying, we are going to take back the House, we are going to take back the Senate, and 
Democrats won't like what comes next because we will be the ones in power. But right after he said this, he had the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell, as a guest. And I knew at this point that I'd made the right decision to watch this network. Mike Lindell went on and on about how election fraud wasn't going to happen this time, saying, We have teams of people watching the polls across the nation. He went on about how there was an example of a ballot stuffer, quote, switching a poll worker's vote, printing it in her car, and bringing it back. He talked about having a, quote, real-time crime desk to report on election fraud throughout the country. He said that they were going to have lots of cyber guys on throughout the country, the best cyber guys there are, and they're going to be reporting on all the vote manipulation. Basically just the same kind of thing that we've been hearing for years now from Mike Lindell with no proof and even less logic. He concluded his segment on Bannon's show by saying that we got to overrun the algorithms with a red wave. There's got to be so many people voting, there's no way the Democrats can fraud their way out of this one. So in other words, Mike Lindell, the guy who, for years now, has been undermining his followers' belief in legitimate elections, is saying that they should go out and vote. Pretty rich coming from him. But right after him, Steve Bannon had on the white supremacist Charlie Kirk. And all Charlie Kirk wanted to talk about was the voter machine fraud and manipulation happening in Maricopa County. He said, and I'm quoting him directly here, that stuff is happening with regards to the voting machines. He said that 20% of all machines in Maricopa County weren't working. Steve Bannon then cut to a press conference in which Arizona authorities said that about a fifth of ballots in some machines occasionally wouldn't go through the tabulator. Charlie Kirk implied that this was planned and part of some sort of sinister plot by the Democrats to steal the election. So in other words, this was a complete mischaracterization of what was happening in Maricopa County. Basically, it's not that the votes weren't being counted, it's that the automatic tabulator wasn't working sometimes, and what they did was with these ballots, they'd try it again and try it again and try it again, and if they still didn't work, they'd put them in a separate marked and secured box for them to be tabulated later. And what people like Steve Bannon and Charlie Kirk were saying is that these ballots were being put in these boxes not to be counted later, but to either not be counted or to be switched by the Democrats. And as tends to happen extraordinarily quickly now, like way more so than ever before, this conspiracy theory eventually found its way to the legitimate outer portion of the bubble. Brett Bayer of Fox News reported on it a couple of hours later, very much insinuating that there might be some sinister motive behind it. How about we fix the machines? I mean, why is this happening? Can we get our head around? There are going to be problems all over the country, some problems, but for it to happen here, for yeah. it to happen now in this way is kind of strange. Now, as expected, nothing ever came of this, and those results were eventually counted. But I feel like at that point, the bubble, and to a lesser extent, Fox, was setting their viewers up to be able to say, if they wanted, this election might have been rigged. We should keep our eyes and ears open for what the Democrats try and pull next. And this sort of rhetoric continued as votes started coming in later on. During Fox News' evening coverage of the election results, Tucker Carlson briefly came on and immediately started questioning them, particularly with Maricopa County, where this 
interesting stuff was happening. He said that they wouldn't let people vote and highly insinuated that violence would come from the wrong result. Laura Ingram seconded this notion and said that there must be a federal standard for elections. And believe it or not, I actually agree with that. There should be a federal standard for how elections are run. I remember thinking to myself, oh my goodness, am I actually agreeing with something Laura Ingram said? But she wasn't done. She then went on to say that Florida is the model for what elections should look like. So in other words, an election system is only a model when the Republicans sweep the board. But as the night went on, it started looking even early on as though Democrats would do pretty well, considering that generally in the past, midterms have historically been a windfall for the opposing party of the president. But it got to the point that even Fox started saying that things weren't looking super rosy for the Republicans. Brett Bayer on his coverage said that Republicans should be disappointed tonight. But that was about the extent of it from Fox and the legitimate portion of the bubble. When we go further into the crazy part, we could see that MAGA Nation was absolutely dumbfounded and completely losing it over what was happening. And in their eyes, the only possible explanation was that they stole it from us. Here's a clip from Conservative Daily, your daily dose of sanity, with a ticker on the bottom saying, the steel is real in all the right places. We, we can see the fraud. We can see the fraud in the machines, Draza. We can see it. We can see it. Yes, mail-in ballots. Yes, 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 yes. The Eric system shares all these people and the fraud of stealing people's identities and putting that in and, and, and front-loading the machines with the SQL database, which I said you could do. It showed it in Mesa County. You run the database right next to the thing. You run the database right next to the thing. And poof. Massive fraud. But quite possibly the best take on Republican underperformance on election night has to go to Mike Lindell. You'd think maybe he'd blame Venezuela or Hugo Chavez or Dominion or something like that. But not this time. Now he knew exactly who the Democrats were working with to cheat and what he was doing to stop them. Who, who attacked our country and what is this all about? It's the CCP, the Uniparty, the Deep State, the Globalists, and now the Democrat Party joining with all of them. Um, here's what we have. In our real-time crime desk, if you have a graphic to put up, I'm going to show you just one of them, and this is from the Democrat. So we're watching these races. Vance was one. I believe they early on they were taking it, uh, taking Vance, and I think they just didn't put any injection because he totally overran the algorithm. Mike, my pillow guy Lindell, ladies and gentlemen, doing his utmost to make sure that the evil Democrats and the Chinese Communist Party don't steal the election away from J.D. Vance by overrunning the algorithm with votes. But let's be very clear, folks, and this is what's interesting about this whole thing. These takes from Mike Lindell and people like him come from very, very fringe areas of the bubble. Places that make even Infowars look tame by comparison. And aside from these websites that are knowingly and unabashedly biased and conspiratorial, so much so that not even most of the adherents of the bubble know or follow them, aside from these places, this rhetoric that I thought was going to seep into the mainstream of the bubble sort of just stayed there and didn't really go anywhere. 
As the results started to come in later on in the night, and it became clear that Republicans didn't get the big red wave that they thought they were going to, Fox in particular really started sort of coping with reality in a way that I didn't think would happen, at least not yet. They started asking themselves how and why this might have happened the way that it did. They touched on everything from Biden being old and possibly senile, saying it may have done the Democrats some good for him to stay out of the public eye, to marveling at how the debate didn't affect John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, saying that it didn't move anything in terms of voting decisions. And then they turned their attention to the polls, saying, quote, that polls are dead since people stopped using landlines. And actually, I don't disagree with this assessment. I can say personally, I've gotten many calls from pollsters and whatnot and sent them to voicemail. And in the spirit of actually coping with reality, Fox, believe it or not, actually listened in on John Fetterman's victory speech. Afterwards, they actually had the stones to say, if the debate had happened a month and a half earlier, who knows what would have happened? I think it's pretty obvious why they didn't have the debate earlier because he was recovering from a stroke. But once Fetterman won, their commentary turned very grim for GOP hopes of taking the Senate. They called it an absolute disaster for the Republican Party. Then Fox pundits, interestingly, started doing the whole let's work together with the Democrats dance. They were so out of sorts, and it was such an unexpected result for them, that they even got some of the districts that they were reporting on wrong and had to correct themselves in real time. Carl Rove, who was on as a commentator, did his best to mitigate the damage, saying that there's many different groups of Hispanic voters and some of them went conservative, some of them didn't. But despite the negative news for Republicans and the discussions they were actually having on air, the Chirons at the bottom of the screen continued to display only the few big conservative victories, mostly from Florida. And the one liberal on the panel talked about how the GOP needs to move away from being so extreme. She said, quote, The fact that they lost the presidency in 2020 and now are doing so bad in 2022 shows that they need to move away from being so extreme. The politics of Trump are not translating into wins the way they thought they would. And they actually let the liberal on the panel finish this sentence. And I thought to myself, huh, are they actually reaching a point here where they're going to have to reckon with what they've done and actually try and change themselves to be a little more reality-based? Could it be that there's actually some hope for Fox News? But then they started talking about how great Ron DeSantis is and that they needed to follow him specifically. And anyone who does research on DeSantis and his views and his goals and what he's done in Florida would see that DeSantis is essentially a fascist. DeSantis, for all intents and purposes, politically anyway, is Donald Trump, but younger, smarter, and even more fascist. And worst of all, he is completely open about his fascism. Whereas Donald Trump tries to hide behind statements such as, A lot of people have said this. DeSantis just does it and then says, yeah, I did this. What are you going to do about it? So with this in mind, Fox, in a way, on election night, seemed to already be moving on from the politics of Trump to the politics of DeSantis. And this, in my view, represents a step deeper into the bubble 
and into fascism rather than away from it towards the light. And Brett Bayer sort of alluded to this in their conclusion of their coverage of election night, saying with a rather ominous sign-off, this is how democracy works when it works. The implication, of course, being that democracy didn't work tonight and that the election may have possibly been rigged. And the only way we can unrig it is by following people like Ron DeSantis who want to just rig it for themselves. And as the days after the election passed and we started to see what the end results actually were, it's pretty clear that Fox and the bubble in general was gearing up for one very specific battle. And that is DeSantis versus Trump. Fox pundits in particular started talking very extensively about DeSantis versus Trump, many of them saying that Trump should wait on announcing his candidacy until after the Warnock and Herschel Walker runoff. Others started saying that it was inevitable, and waiting on this would make him look weak. Clearly, at this point, they were talking directly to Trump through the TV, as Fox News has been known to do. And similarly, when they did bring up the prospect of DeSantis trying to face Trump, they would mostly say that DeSantis would run and he would lose. Trump himself immediately started badmouthing DeSantis on Truth Social, saying, quote, Now that the election in Florida is over and everything went quite well, shouldn't it be said that in 2020, I got 1.1 million more votes in Florida than Ron D. got this year? Just asking. He also brought back the Ron DeSanctimonious nickname that he'd bestowed upon him in his rallies. And just as a little side note, I'm not quite sure what Trump is trying to say with that nickname. Because if you looked up the definition of sanctimonious in the dictionary, it is literally making a hypocritical show of religious devotion, piety, or righteousness. In other words, when he calls him Ron DeSanctimonious, he's essentially saying that Ron DeSantis isn't really religious, he just uses it to get votes. Which is pretty rich, coming from the guy who we know is himself very much sanctimonious. And I actually do believe that Ron DeSantis is a religious man, and you'll see why later on. But my point is that Trump bestowed this desanctimonious nickname on him not because of how it makes him sound or the irony of him himself being a sanctimonious person, but simply because it was a word that worked within the confines of DeSantis's name. When you examine it under even the smallest amount of logic, it makes no sense that he would bestow this nickname upon DeSantis other than the fact that it just sounds good. But anyway, moving to MAGA Nation itself, they certainly had some things to say about the performance of the Republicans in the midterms. Here's a guy on Charlie Kirk's show on Real America's Voice going absolutely ballistic over how spineless and weak-willed the Republicans were in this year's midterms. I think that it's time for people to accept the reality of the civil war inside of the Republican Party. It does oh, seem yeah. as though, talking about doing nothing, man, I've never seen anything more flaccid and linguine-spined than the way that corp the corporate GOP approached this very winnable election. I thought it was wild the way they rolled out this plan for America. I saw nothing about it. Nothing. 
I am obsessed with following the news. I got an entire team of young kids, 20 years old. All they do is look at clips online. Never once did I get a clip about Kevin McCarthy going based, going flamethrower. Kevin McCarthy rip-roaring. Never once. I didn't get a single clip that, like, the corporate GOP did a single fire thing in this election. And we cover this Benny, day in God and day out. You. We have the best damn people on the Internet covering the hottest clips out there. And we go nuts for it. And if Kevin McCarthy did something boost, I would have covered it. I have nothing against it. But I didn't get a single clip. You heard that right, folks. This dude was straight up accusing Kevin McCarthy of not having a spine and not being boost. I mean... Who could imagine Kevin McCarthy not having a spine? Who'd have thunk it? And if that wasn't enough of an anecdote for what MAGA Nation wanted the Republicans to do to the Democrats in the midterms, here's another example also from Charlie Kirk's show from Benny Johnson. Will Republicans use power? This is my question. Will they wield power? Because if you, you have a single takeaway as the result stands right now, it is that what the Republican electorate wants is a strong executive who utilizes and wields power over his enemies and then destroys his enemies and makes them grovel, makes molten salty tears flow from their faces, as Ron DeSantis did with Disney. So in case you needed any more proof that not only is the base of the Republican Party fascist, but so is Ron DeSantis and they see him as such, that pretty much just says it right out in the open right there. This guy praises Ron DeSantis for bringing out the molten, salty tears of the libs because that's what real power does. They punish and destroy their enemies. And while all of this does sound a bit scary in a vacuum, it makes it seem as though the base of the Republican Party wants a fascist takeover of the American government and supports Ron DeSantis in doing so. What we have to remember is that these people are in the very, very center of the fringe part of the bubble. In other words, they are fascists, they do not care about facts, and they're perfectly happy being upfront about both of those things. That's not where the majority of people in the bubble get their information from. That's not to say that these people don't exist. Obviously, these folks have an audience, and these people are probably the kind of people we should be worried about. People like David DePapa, who attacked Paul Pelosi in his home. But what I'm trying to say is that that doesn't really represent the bubble as a whole. It's more like where the bubble might end up if it's left entirely unchecked. And one of the points I'm trying to make with the episode today is that one of the ways we can check the bubble and sort of bring its adherence a little bit closer to reality is by doing something that they can't ignore, such as winning elections. And it seems as though Fox in particular definitely sort of took this lesson to heart after the election was over. Because all the pundits could talk about was abortion being the issue that won for the Democrats, which I wouldn't say it was completely the case, but it definitely helped, and Biden running against Trump and or DeSantis in 2024. Biden said that he does plan on running in 2024, and believe it or not, Fox actually carried his entire speech in which he made this announcement and the Q&A afterwards, which lasted for, I think, a little bit over an hour. So kudos to Fox News for actually showing some reality on their channel for once. But in true Fox News fashion, once that was over and the five came on, 
self-described a-hole Greg Gutfeld, said that they'd find a way for Biden not to be in public. They'll put him in a hermetically sealed coffin. Implications aside about him saying that maybe someone will assassinate Biden, that's basically just him saying that he's so senile and out of it and isn't able to comprehend anything that's going on means that they just have to put him out of public view for the entire time he's running. Kind of like they did in 2020. But amid all the jokes at President Biden's expense, Jesse Waters, believe it or not, actually had a pretty good take on the subject. He said that it would be a lot harder than most people might think to defeat Biden because, quote, there's no hate votes against Biden out there like there were for Obama. And this is actually a fairly accurate take on why Biden was successful where Obama wasn't. Because when Obama became president, you definitely had the racist hate vote come in, and that's what sort of swept the Tea Party into power in 2010. But even if you disagree with Joe Biden's politics, it's pretty much impossible to hate him as a person, even for the right-wingers. And the reason for this is because he really checks all the boxes that they usually want in their candidates. Religious? Check. White? Check. Relatively wealthy? Check. But most importantly, he's just too gosh darn nice. There's nothing about Joe Biden's personality that makes you think he's not one of just the nicest, most caring people you've ever seen in your life. It's why the Biden crime family stories like the quid pro quo in Ukraine and his shady business dealings with China, it's why none of that has really stuck. Because as much as people like Tucker Carlson might try and promote it to the front line, Biden's just too nice of a person for anyone to really believe that he's this sort of weird mafia-style crime boss. And he's very much Christian, so you can't hate him for not being Christian. He's very much white, so you can't hate him for being black like you did for Obama. And you can't doubt his commitment to the country. He was a senator for over 50 years. So I agree with Jesse Waters here in that there's really nothing that the Republicans have on Biden that they can use against him personally, because he's such a likable guy that you can't use the ad hominem attacks against him. They're completely ineffective. And so rather than attack Biden directly, Fox and the other outlets in the bubble have just chosen to focus on his son, Hunter, and basically say that because Hunter's such a bad guy, that must mean Joe Biden is secretly a bad guy too. And as if on cue, in the midst of talking about the election and Biden and why the Republicans lost, the five suddenly shifted the subject to about how the GOP-led House should have Hunter Biden investigated, quote, over and over. So much so that the lone liberal member of the five actually brought up the question, how is Hunter Biden a bigger national security threat than January 6th? The rest of the panel literally laughed at her when she said this and said that January 6th was political theater and was just done to decrease the approval of the GOP by the voters. The liberal, in a rare showing of actual opposition on the five, actually brought up Benghazi and said that Kevin McCarthy actually admitted that the Benghazi hearings were only political theater to reduce public confidence in Hillary Clinton. Judge Janine then did her shouting over everyone thing and yelled that Biden is a criminal liability and the president must be corrupt. 
And so her doing this reminded me of a point that I learned in debate class when I was in college. It basically says that if your opponent starts yelling at you, it means they know they've lost. Specifically, it means that they're trying to get the win for themselves just by being louder than the other person. My point being that this is something I see specifically Judge Janine do all the time when her viewpoints are challenged. She thinks that her being louder than the other person and drowning them out makes her view more valid. So, in other words, if I yell at you and you don't respond in kind or back down and walk away, that means that I've won. It's very reminiscent of the famous Family Guy cutaway gag where the guy says, oh, he's stubborn as a mule. And it cuts to a mule with his arms folded saying, Kevin Bacon was not in Footloose. And as the guy keeps trying to convince him that Kevin Bacon was indeed in Footloose, he keeps getting louder and louder and louder until he's just screaming, no, 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 hee-haw, hee-haw. And the guy gives up. My point is that this is an increasingly used tactic by the right to try and convince not just themselves, but whoever else might be watching, that they're the ones that won the argument, even when they didn't. And the fact that a lot of people in the bubble don't use reality or facts in their arguments anymore just makes this strategy all the more necessary for them to be able to keep people in the bubble from questioning their reality. In other words, I'm just going to keep yelling at you until you agree with me. As I've said many times on this show, no matter how crazy something might be, if you say it loud enough, often enough, and strongly enough, eventually people will start to believe it. And this is just another example of that ethos in action. But before I move on to the primetime hosts, I just wanted to really quickly mention that Gutfeld, at one point in the show, was talking about New Zealand, and he said it was the country where they make, quote, the lords in the rings. That is how he said it. That is not how it's said. And as a huge Lord of the Rings fan, I just had to give him some crap for that. So anyway, moving on to Jesse Waters. He said on his show that either the Republicans ran terrible candidates or they aren't spending enough money. He then asked a very interesting and, in my opinion, telling question. Trump has a massive war chest. Where did all that money go? I'll tell you where it went, Jesse. Right into Trump's pocket. Because we all know now that the whole idea of him running for president in the first place was to increase his own public image and make money off of it. It was the same with his fundraising ops. There was lots of fine print letting Trump use the money for anything he wanted, and he did. In fact, there was a minor scandal this past week over how the fundraising emails and campaigns for Herschel Walker actually had a checkmarked box on it that was automatically checked when you donated that said, oh, I'm also going to donate to the Save America PAC funded by Donald Trump. And at least for a while, the split for these funds when you donated to both was 90% to Trump's organization and 10% to Herschel Walker. After the story came out, they flipped it down to 50-50, but they still automatically checked the box, which also automatically enrolled you in recurring donations. In other words, Donald Trump is nothing more than a grifter who's just using the Republican Party and the fact that he was president to make himself more money. But that shouldn't really surprise anybody. Nor should it surprise anybody that Jesse Waters, while talking about the election, found a way to segue it into a discussion about women, specifically young single women. 
Waters said that democratic policies are designed to keep women single. He said that you have hardcore Democrat females in your class teaching your kids eight hours a day. And while watching this segment, I found myself asking, I wonder how he might throw sex into that conversation. Now, he didn't, at least not directly, but he strongly hinted at the damage a young single woman would do teaching liberal values in our schools. White nationalist Jack Prosobiec had a similar take on Charlie Kirk's show. He said that, quote, the left literally wants to turn every woman unmarried. So once again, just straight up misogyny coming out of the bubble. This is not anything surprising. Moving on to Tucker Carlson. He was absolutely incredulous about the results of the elections, asking, what exactly happened in the elections? He said he cautiously believed in the red wave. Cue, of course, that montage of everyone on Fox News talking about how huge the red wave would be. But Tucker puts the blame specifically on the GOP leadership, saying that no one should ever be rewarded for failure. He then started touting the values and the virtues of meritocracy. And he said it that way. And the word meritocracy, they say they mean giving power to those who deserve it because of how useful they are to society. But in this sense, in the sense that most conservatives tend to understand the world, a meritocracy simply means that we're giving power to the ones who deserve it because we feel that they deserve it. So in other words, one of the core tenets of conservative ideology, the people who have the power must deserve the power because they already have it. So that means they're just better than everybody else. And that's the kind of meritocracy that Tucker is referring to here. Basically, that if they were really deserving of this power that we wanted to give them, then they would have won. And because they didn't win it, that means they aren't deserving of it. So in other words, those who really are deserving of the power will find a way to keep it, even if they, for example, lose an election. And it makes sense as to why they've supported Donald Trump all this time. Because he refuses to admit that he lost. To this day, he still maintains that the 2020 election was stolen from him. And the way that the GOP and the bubble in general interprets this is, he's a fighter. He's not going to go down without a fight. He's a real man. He deserves that power. And to this point, later on in the show, Tucker Carlson had Carrie Lake on. She, of course, is the candidate for governor of Arizona, who definitely lost now, but at the time, the race was still in question, but she was definitely behind. She cast doubt on her own election results, saying, quote, I will win no matter what. She said that her homeowners association has more transparent and accurate elections than Arizona was. And she said that she was 100% confident that she would win multiple times. With no question, of course, of what happens if she doesn't win. Thankfully, nothing so far has come of it, and while she hasn't conceded, it's pretty clear that she lost, and she's going to take it that way. So Tucker, while he did indeed push the theory that there may have been some funny business going on in the election, he never outright said or even implied in the day after the election that the election results should not be accepted, which is a good thing. It means that perhaps somebody higher up in Fox News is starting to see, you know, 
maybe we shouldn't be doing all this election denial talk. It's not good for us. It's not good for the Republican Party. Similarly, when Hannity came on, he said that the glowing predictions of a big red tsunami were foolish. Except that literally two nights ago, you said there would be one. But moving on from that, taking that aside, like Tucker, the rest of the show was just a revolving door of his frequent GOP guests like Ted Cruz and Herschel Walker saying how well the Republicans did considering the circumstances. It's definitely a weird dichotomy of narratives. It seems like Fox, in particular, is simultaneously saying the GOP did terrible and that they did awesome. And as I like to say on this show many, many times, you can't have it both ways. You can say we did well in some areas and not so well in other areas, but you can't at the same time say we did well everywhere and we were terrible everywhere. But as we know, this is a primary tenet of fascist ideology. The enemy that you're facing is simultaneously too weak and too strong. And it seems to me that, at least with Fox News, they're trying to structure the way their political pundits report on what happened in a way that makes both of these arguments just using different people for different parts of it. In this case, Tucker was the, the enemy was too strong and we couldn't overcome them argument. Hannity was somewhere in the middle. He sort of did a little bit of both. He said simultaneously that the GOP was too weak to get things done and the GOP just was super strong in Florida and the places that they did win, which means that everything's on track. And then came Laura Ingram. She was the firebrand. She asked right out of the gate, what exactly are the Democrats celebrating? She lambasted Biden saying he wouldn't change anything and then spliced together clips making his gas price touting look dishonest and overly critical of oil companies. She laughed at it and then said that even CNN called him out for this hypocrisy, not realizing, of course, as I went through in my CNN episode, that Chris Licht is doing this by design. He's essentially turning CNN into Fox Light. But then she heaped even more praise on Florida and Ron DeSantis basically saying these are the people that the Republican Party needs to aspire to be like. In other words, the Democrats are too weak and will fall before the onslaught of people like DeSantis. Literally not even an hour after Hannity said that the glowing predictions of a big red tsunami were foolish. And that was two nights after he said that there would be a big red tsunami. So as I've said many times before on this show, we're not supposed to be paying attention to how the narrative shifts, how the goalposts shift. If you're in the bubble, you only believe what's directly in front of you right now at this moment. And so because of this viewpoint, even arguments that are completely contradictory to one another can be made back to back and everything still seems to make sense. The Republicans are simultaneously in crisis and stronger than they ever were before. And this is the narrative that the right continues to push even to this day, especially now that Trump has finally actually announced his candidacy. And it came out not long before Trump announced that he'd had a private discussion with the head of Fox News, who had basically told Trump that he would not support another run for president. But of course, this being Fox News and the fact that a lot of MAGA people still watch it, 
it didn't stop them from carrying most of his speech. It came on during Hannity's hour last Tuesday night, and we again saw this dichotomy of simultaneously Trump is amazing and no one's going to beat him and saying that he's nothing but a cancer and that we need to back other people like DeSantis. And it's pretty clear that this isn't just about trying to back both and seeing who wins first. There is definitely a shift going on in the rhetoric of the bubble since the midterms that basically is splitting the narrative into two. You have your pro-Trump side, and you have your pro-DeSantis side. And then you have some outlets like Fox sort of trying to play both sides. Although if Fox was ambiguous about their choice the day of Trump's speech, they definitely made their choice the day after. The front page of Fox News' site said, quote, GOP megadonors want to move on from three-time loser Trump. Look to back DeSantis in 2024 presidential bid. And let's not forget that a few days before his announcement, Trump officially declared war on Ron DeSantis, saying in one of his official statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States of America, that he was an average Republican governor and that the only reason he was successful was because Trump made it that way. Believe it or not, he actually admits to election tampering himself, saying that he sent the FBI in to make sure that Ron won the election. Or in his terms, stop the election from being stolen. And then he ended his statement with a couple of sentences that I can only describe as, come at me, bro. And DeSantis' response to all this was simply to say in one of his speeches a couple of days after this statement came out, Look at the scoreboard. Shots fired. But if you want to know which side of this epic battle that the bubble generally supports, all you have to do is look at a few of the headlines that came out after both of these things happened. The New York Post, who in the past has unabashedly endorsed Donald Trump, fired the first salvo. They relegated the story of his re-election campaign to page 26 and just had a small line at the bottom of the front page that said, Florida man makes announcement. The article itself was absolutely amazing and full of snark, so much so that I'm going to read it to you because it's pretty short. With just 720 days to go before the next election, a Florida retiree made the surprise announcement Tuesday night that he was running for president. In a move no political pundit saw coming, avid golfer Donald J. Trump kicked things off at Mar-a-Lago, his resort and classified documents library. Trump, famous for gold-plated lobbies and for firing people on reality television, will be 78 in 2024. If elected, Trump would tie Joe Biden as the oldest president to take office. His cholesterol levels are unknown, but his favorite food is a charred steak with ketchup. He has stated that his qualifications for office include being a stable genius. Trump also served as the 45th president. The end. Short, sweet, to the point, and absolutely hilarious. For once, I am actually applauding an article that was written in the New York Post. Who'd have thunk it, folks? The National Review was a bit more blunt about their viewpoint. They had an article up on the front page simply titled, No. On Team Trump, we had Breitbart, who was apparently all in saying that he, quote, 
unveiled his national greatness agenda at his luxurious seaside resort. There was another article on the front page praising him for helping the GOP win the House. The Federalist had a big article on their front page saying that it would be wise to remember what happened in 2016 and the rest of the article just saying how great Trump was as a president. So it would seem to me that Trump is now finally, after seven long years, starting to lose his grip on the GOP. And consequently, DeSantis is gaining it. His admittedly good victory speech on election night sounded more like a national call to arms than a victory speech. And if you had asked me before the midterms, I didn't think this was going to happen until 2024, or at the very least, when Trump was eventually indicted, which, by the way, I still think is going to happen. But due to both his strong showing in Florida and Trump's overall weak showing nationally, DeSantis is telling the GOP and America that he is ready to take the reins, and the bubble seems to be showing that it's ready to embrace him. So it could be that within the very near future, we will be seeing a civil war within the GOP. Although it looks like the majority of people in power are either abandoning Trump or backing DeSantis, or both, it's very clear that Trump still has a pretty sizable hold on a big portion of the conservative base. And I think Keith Olbermann put it best on what might happen because of this. So I'm just going to sort of paraphrase what he said. He believes, and I also believe, that what's going to happen is that Trump and DeSantis are going to fight each other bloody for the next year and a half until the primary begins in earnest. And then when Ron DeSantis inevitably wins the primary over Donald Trump, he's not going to take it lying down. Instead, Trump would rather run as an independent and burn the whole thing to the ground than lose to Ron DeSantis. And so what this will do is basically guarantee that a Democrat wins the White House in 2024, whether it's Biden or whoever they decide to run instead of him. But going back to my original point that I made at the beginning of the episode, this is why the midterms this year were so important. Because if the GOP, as a result of their miserable performance in the midterms, is split between Trump and DeSantis, they can't really unify behind a message of we need to be able to run the elections the way we want to so we can change the results. The Republicans are going to be too busy fighting each other over who is the head of the party that even if they were in power in state legislatures and secretaries of state, they wouldn't be able to coordinate a campaign of voter suppression and changing the election results like they would if there weren't this conflict. So it's going to be a very interesting time, especially in the bubble, over the next year and a half. And I'm definitely looking forward to looking in on it and reporting it back to you guys. And I find it very interesting that the GOP and the bubble lied, cheated, gerrymandered, ridiculed, painted false narratives, purged voter rolls, undermined the voting process, embraced Christian nationalism, racism, and fascism, and even tried to overthrow the government and then subsequently cover it up. And through all of this, they still remained a single cohesive unit. But it turns out that all it took to bring the whole thing crashing down 
was a bad election. And with that, it's time for me to move on to this episode's Alex Jones Award. So this episode's Jonesy goes to Ron DeSantis. And while I wouldn't say this is funny, it's definitely in the weird and in some ways downright scary category. As we all know, during campaign season, we see a lot of ads for political candidates basically trying to say what they're about and why you should vote for them. But DeSantis decided to do things a little bit differently for his final campaign ad that came out not long before the election. And if it wasn't obvious enough that Ron DeSantis is planning on running for president in 2024, this ad definitely makes that very clear. Now, as you're listening to the snippet of the ad I'm about to show you, I want you to think about the implications of what the narrator is saying about Ron DeSantis. And that even without saying his name, there's still some very interesting insinuations being made. Check it out. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a protector. So God made a fighter. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, kiss his family goodbye, travel thousands of miles for no other reason than to serve the people, to save their jobs, their livelihoods, their liberty, their happiness. So God made a fighter. God said, I need someone to be strong, advocate truth in the midst of hysteria, someone who challenges conventional wisdom and isn't afraid to defend what he knows to be right and just. So God made a fighter. We have our Messiah, ladies and gentlemen. The search is over. All praise His Holiness, His glory, Ron DeSantis. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you watch and your mouth is just on the floor open. Like, is this guy serious? Is he seriously anointing himself as God's chosen? And let me be very clear, folks, that was only about a quarter of the ad that I showed you. There's another minute and a half of it that it goes on in basically the same vein, calling him God's chosen fighter. And so this tells me two things. It says that A, obviously he's running for the presidency because he wants the evangelical vote, and so he's styling himself as God's chosen fighter, so that he'll get those evangelicals to the polls in 2024. But secondly, and more importantly to me, he is infusing the ideals of religion and the chosen one into the political arena. In other words, he's basically saying, I, Ron DeSantis, am your political Jesus, and you will worship me above all others for I am God's chosen one. So putting aside the implications of him anointing himself as God's chosen fighter to do battle against the libs, this is, without a doubt in my mind, introduction and indoctrination into fascist, authoritarian, and autocratic ideology. He is anointing himself as God's chosen one, not just to win favor with the evangelicals, but to start the wheels turning in people's minds of him actually being this godly messianic figure so that when he does take power, it'll be a lot easier for him to anoint himself as someone akin to perhaps the Kim family in North Korea. Coming soon, 
the article about Ron DeSantis playing golf for the first time and hitting a hole-in-one on every hole, and then never playing golf again. And seeing things like this, it makes me actually agree with something that was said by, believe it or not, none other than Barry Goldwater, who back in 64 was the racist presidential candidate of the Republican Party who lost to LBJ. He said, quote, Mark my word, if and when these preachers get control of the Republican Party, and they're sure trying to do so, it's going to be a terrible damn problem. Frankly, these people frighten me. Politics and governing demand compromise. But these Christians believe that they are acting in the name of God, so they won't and can't compromise. This is something that is both a core tenet of fascist ideology and something that I've been warning about for years with regards to the evangelical rights infiltration of conservative politics. When you give a politician the blessing and therefore the infallibility of God, they can do no wrong. We cannot question anything he does because it is the will of God. This is how people like Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran, for example, maintain their power and are able to do whatever they want. Because they are thought of as God's representative on planet Earth. And therefore, everything that is done by him or in his name cannot be questioned or disobeyed. This is how authoritarianism starts, folks. You have a charismatic, messianic, godlike figure who anoints himself as the chosen one and says that I alone am the solution to all your problems. But seeing this come from Mr. Ron, I stuff my suits to make myself puffed up and look more like Trump DeSantis is a little more hilarious than it is scary, at least at this point. So congratulations to Ron DeSantis, or is it Ron DeSavior? Ron DeSanctimonious? Whatever his name is, he's the winner of this episode's Alex Jones Award. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this episode of Undercover Bubble. I want to thank you all for joining me today. If you like the podcast, don't be afraid to subscribe and tell your friends. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at UCB underscore podcast, or you can follow my personal channel at Pimo the Music Man. Thank you very much for joining me, folks. See you next time. Have a good one.